All right. Today is September 15th. Uh, we're happy to be joined once again by Meredith Axelrod. And this time, uh, you are traveling with Craig Ventresco. So welcome both. Thank you for having Thanks. us. Thanks. It's great to be back. Um, I would be remiss, I think, if we didn't sort of continue this conversation we've been having all day today, which is your uh, interest in, uh, if I can use the term, infatuation with talking with Mark Jones and finding out oh, that everything cool. about Grandpa Jones. Well, yeah, that was so interesting to meet somebody who, you know, talking to some cool guy, he's cool anyway, and then on top of everything, it just slips out, oh, yeah, he's Grandpa Jones' son. That's so amazing to me. And yeah, must, the look on your face. <laughs> well, yeah, because when I was probably four or five, I was watching those hee-haw shows, and Grandpa Jones was like my hero, and I've always collected 78s by him and stuff. And uh, it's just very strange. I can, yeah, it's, it's always interesting to meet people that are the offspring of people and, you know, to find out they're cool people on top of that. Yeah, it's a neat little... Uh, bonus for this gig here yeah, i mean you well, never know when you're traveling who you're going to meet you don't you never know that's what makes it fun um so these are some kind of just 101 questions for lack of a better term for folks who aren't familiar with you guys or haven't heard what you do or are familiar uh a lot with what you do so pardon me if they sound a bit naive but <laughs> for folks who are just hearing you guys for the first time i think it'll be helpful we'll try not to scoff yeah exactly please don't okay um so you guys are part of a community of musicians that um is really preserving and uh, outperforming early 20th century music meredith we heard your story a little bit earlier today how your dad was a piano player uh and would bring home music and that was sort of your introduction uh, to the earliest, early 20th century music. Um, and Craig, what, uh, did you have a similar, uh, background, uh, as Meredith? Was it a family thing or how did you get into it? It's hard to explain and it's hard cause I don't talk about myself enough to know, but I know that when I was really young, I just was obsessed with phonographs that had horns. And when I was a little kid, I just somehow heard this record of the very first, it was like an LP of the very first Caruso records. And as much as I loved his voice, what really was interesting to me was the spoken announcement at the beginning where the guy in Italian would announce each record and the name of the selection. And then I think I heard a Vess Ostman record from about 1903 somehow. And the same thing where the guy came on and said, you know, Creole Bells played by Mr. Vessel Osman. As much as I loved the music, I think what I really loved was that announcement. And just like something about, you know, now when I look back, I realize what it was, was that the, those were kind of crude records, but they were really intimate. You know, it's like you were there with those people. It was a guy announcing a guy playing piano and somebody playing an instrument, but it was just very, uh, there was no editing. It was real music, you know. I'll jump in. The coolest thing about that is that the singers themselves announced themselves in the third person. I remember realizing that's the singer announcing himself. And yeah, sometimes it's they so did cool. That. You get to hear them speak. Yeah, and the singers, a lot to, it like those the pop singers back then, like S. H. Dudley and Dan W. Quinn and the people who would be called like the pioneer recording artists, they really did sing 
and vo- and beautiful, like they were their own voices. But those records were really hard to find. It took me years and years to even know what to look for. But I always looked for 78s, like in people's garages and stuff. And then one day, I think, I heard a Billy Murray 78, and I realized, like, oh, that's the guy. Like, that's the type of voice I like. That was the epiphany. And then I found Jim Walsh's Hobbies articles, where he wrote for 40 years for Hobbies every month about different pioneer recording artists who made records at the turn of the century. And that's who I really learned from, was him and those articles. And that introduced me to tons of record collectors. And I don't know. Well, we'll talk. I want to talk about that because we did that in our pre-chat, talked about record collectors, and I want to get there. Uh, Meredith, I heard you talking today during the matinee show. Uh, I guess I didn't realize, but you guys have known each other for some time, judging by what you said. Oh, yeah. How long? We go way back. Well, I probably met you uh, 18 years ago or something. No kidding. Yeah, when my family came out to San Francisco. And was it, he was out playing on the street? Was he a, were you a musician uh, then? Or? Yeah. I was, but I was also friends with her family. That's how I met her in the first That's place. how you met my family, by playing on the street. Oh, but I totally want to say, I, I mean, I wanted to say that Billy Murray's voice is unique. Billy, Billy Murray's voice is anomalous within the within the genre. So if if I heard Billy Murray's voice and said that's the kind of voice I gotta be hearing, I'd be out of luck because well the other guys they're great too, and everything that binds them in common is great. And Billy Murray shares those characteristics that binds all of them in common, but his voice is really standalone. He's got this unique resonance that's very peculiar. I'll tell you something funny. NPR, when I was like a little kid, my dad used to listen to NPR, and there was a radio show that Terry Waldo, who I since played music with, like, but he had a radio show called This Is Ragtime that I heard when I was maybe a little kid. And that's when I first heard Billy Murray, but the, the, the thing is, he, he played three records to show why Ragtime was bad, and the, and the Murray record was one of them. He played Billy Murray and the American Quartet singing The Skeleton Rag, and like my head exploded. I thought it was the greatest thing I ever heard, but the weird part was he was playing as, as an example of <laughs> what was so, as the worst aspect of <laughs> Ragtime, but he didn't even say who it was. And he just played like 40 seconds of it. And I spent years and years looking for the voices on that 40 seconds of music. And it was just like dumb luck that I want to, you know, happened to find a 78 where I heard that lead voice on that record. And you, you could tell it immediately, but th- that. Cause group, it's so distinctive. But all those guys like the, the American quartet, uh, you know, which was originally Bill Hooley on, bass and Steve Porter on baritone, John Beeling was the high tenor and Murray was the tenor. They're not like barbershop quartets, you know, the, the way those guys sang was so beautiful, but it, it seems to be a lost thing. You know, where they, they were singing quartets and they were singing great parts, but they were not like these over the top barbershop type of voices. It was, it was real natural singing. Well, first of all, it, it sounds so different from modern, the musical theater voice. They were musical theater voices of their day, I think. Yeah, I think but they were. 
It's completely different. They, they don't even have sing the opera. Same some of those. People. Oh, I would die to hear Billy Murray sing opera. Yeah, like S. H. Dudley sing opera. Can you do? Can you can you do a Billy Murray impersonation? Ugh. No, nobody. Surely. Can. No, I don't know. It's, it's like, like well, why bother? He, he, what is it? Gee, it's impossible. He, he, he has some kind of strange thing where he's buzzing somewhere in his sinuses. That everybody well, it's buzzes just his in their own sinus, voice, but, though. I mean, it's, it's like a way he would contort his mouth and yeah. his tongue. I, and, I think it was just well, his voice. Really? I think it was no, just. It's the way he holds his anatomy. I, I mean, it. I, here's the thing about his speaking voice. Here's the thing was about just, like just your voice, sang, just though. somebody's voice. You have so much liberty with your voice, like because here's why: because there's no such thing as your voice. You have to hold your musculature in a position in order to phonate. Millimeters, tenths of, millime tenths of millimeters dif difference in where you're holding your anatomy is going to change your voice. There's no such thing as your voice because, because, because in order to engage your vocal folds, you have to hold your anatomy somewhere. You have to, you're, you're not just relaxing your anatomy, you don't have a default voice. You have to hold it somewhere, in some position. Is it here? 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 And those... <laughs> is it here? For is you people here? on radio, she's holding her hands in different <laughs> positions right now. Well, which is why people can do impersonations, <laughs> I guess, right? Of course, and why they can sound completely natural at it. Now, there is, however, a big distinction, or like a big distinction between what sounds natural and what doesn't. And um, very, that is very um, murky and mysterious to me, though I can hear that sounds natural and that doesn't, you but know I who, don't know why. But we were saying about Billy Murray, but what were you oh, saying? Oh, I was just, just reminding me, the only performer in modern times I can think of who tried to imitate those voices on those old records was actually Tiny Tim, of yeah. all people. Like, he was so enamored of all those people, and he really tried to sing like Byron Harlan, and, you know, all, it, was, it was funny, and... You know, say what you want about that guy. He he really did care. Like, he genuinely cared about those old records. But he never really succeeded at actually imitating No, and the sad thing was people just saw him as a novelty. Yeah, he was a lot more than that. He was a crazy dude, though, I think. <laughs> well, when he would sing in that falsetto, well, he, you see, he was capable of great singing. He really was. He just, uh, he didn't sing, he didn't, he was just very sloppy with his pitch. His, that's my That's my biggest beef with uh, with Tim, his yeah. baritone. Well, he had some crappy <laughs> bands he worked with and stuff too, though. But his his baritone, his natural baritone, reminded me of Cliff Edwards a little bit. You know, he he had a, a really beautiful, just natural baritone voice. And all his life, I think he was trying to get a gimmick so he could make it mm -hmm. big. A weird story. Fascinating guy. So Meredith, I, I, it would help if you could just not necessarily okay a Billy Murray and Tim. Uh, Intimidation. Intimidation. <laughs> Not necessarily, you know. This is Billy Murray, and yeah. I'm going to get you. But I mean, just since we are, kick in, your ass. Yeah, since we, <laughs> since we are in an audio setting, maybe just a little bit of it to explain, you know, how you change your voice to sound like that, because you oh, don't okay. talk like that, or you might not sing like that naturally. Like mm. you say, you have to affect uh, your your yeah. body. I know. I'm going to sound completely phony, though. I mean, by natural and unnatural sound, by that standard. Because, all right, I'm not... Uh, let's see. 
What can I really hear him singing in my mind's ear? Eh. Lived a beautiful Egyptian. See, I already said yeah. Lived, lived a, but he doesn't do that. Lived, that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> lived a, lived. I'm telling you, I think. Lived a beautiful Egyptian. But it's much smoother. I can't do vibrato very well. I'll tell well. you something else Lived about that. Lived a beautiful the... Egyptian maid. But that doesn't sound like him at all. That's a failure. There's That's a another total weird failure. thing about old records, though, is how they're reproduced really changes how you hear them. Like if you play a even a, like a blues record you've heard a million times, if you played it on an orthophonic Victrola, you'd hear the voices and the playing differently. And with Billy Murray, like cylinders, if you played them on a real crappy cylinder player, it would sound pretty bad. And if you played it on a fairly decent cylinder player, it would sound like he was in the room with you and it was clear. And if you played it on a cylinder player that was like an, an Edison opera phonograph with a big wooden horn that really was decked out, it would scare you how good it sounded and his voice would sound totally different. In other words, like the, w the way th music is reproduced is, is, a, is a lot different from place to place. Like I couldn't really play a lot of records the way they're supposed to sound because I don't have great, great equipment. But I have a feeling a, a lot of voices that I like would sound a little bit different if I heard them on period equipment that was really decked out to sound perfect. Or imagine if, you know, you could jump in a time machine and go back and hear it. That yeah, would be hear cool. them in the room. Oh, that's always been... And they'd be like, get that person out of here. I'm trying to record. <laughs> well, a lot of it, too, is, you know, what you're hearing. Uh, there was always, there was a, I don't want to say a debate... I don't think there was really any debate about it, but <laughs> this, yeah, this whole thing about like when somebody slowed down the Robert Johnson. Oh, I have an issue with that. Right. I mean, so when I first heard that, I was like, what? That's stupid. It's kind of ridiculous. You know, it, well, I have. So what we're talking about is the blue singer, Robert Johnson, somebody at some point slowed the records down, sort of put them in what was it like they put them in the key of e or a right right Where we would normally would think of a blues song correct and they said this is how it's supposed to but the pitch they pitched it down where the records were playing at like 67 instead of 78 i have an answer for that okay but it takes a minute i want to hear it several things i'll try to make it quick as possible one the ARC, American Record Company, you know, that Robert Johnson was recording for, they made 10-inch records. And those Robert Johnson records weren't really intended to sell that well, and nobody cared about them. So, like, if they had, want, if they had cared about making them, like, the right length, they would have just issued a 12-inch record, which was just as possible, which they did, like, companies with Greek records, for example, when the songs were longer, they'd make 12-inch records. Record engineers weren't stupid back then. But it is true that record speeds vary. 78 is a generic term. Some records play at 74, some at 78, some at 79.3. You have to have a variable speed turntable. But if Robert Johnson records were sped down that much because they cared so much about making sure it got on, why weren't people like the Hoosier Hotshots who also recorded for the same company at the same time. Why didn't they do that with them when their records were selling like hundreds of thousands of copies and ARC had so much more behind it to lose? The reason people 
th thought that the Robert Johnson records should be were slower was because there are these geeks and they think like, oh, nobody could play guitar that fast. When of course that's stupid. Like back in the day, nobody even cared about Robert Johnson's guitar playing. It was like the vocals and the words that meant anything to the, those audiences. You know, he was a great guitar player, but it's not hard to play guitar that fast. It's only hard if you're like some Dorcas Malorcus and you get a brand new guitar and it's like a $9,000 Martin, you take it out of the case and you watch instructional videos and you spend your whole life trying to play the goddamn finger picking as fast as, you know, then sure, it's a chore because you're a CEO or whatever and you're working on it in your spare time. I'm just giving an example. Yes. It's an extreme one. But of course people played that fast. He didn't ever really play that fast. He was accompanying himself. It wasn't like a big issue. But the thing about slowing down records is, you, yeah, every record that you play, if it's a 78, play it with a variable pitch turntable, find the right pitch. But normally it's not going to be 67 instead of 78. That's a dramatic change. It's a dramatic change. It, it doesn't, there's only one pitch where it sounds right, where it sounds natural you can hear it. It's not, it is true. Like, you know what a good example of a record that always is reissued wrong? Poor Boy by Gus Cannon as Banjo Joe. It's always too slow on reissues. It should be reissued at like where the record's playing at like 82 and it's always like way too slow and it sounds like poor boy, long way from mine. Of course it's way too slow, but the Robert Johnson thing, that's wishful thinking. I agree. It's, it's the people who don't get that, you know, these guys were like making a living out on the street. They weren't trying to play slow. I mean, it's all silly. It's just a silly argument. But the, the biggest, the best argument you could give is the recording engineers would have made 12-inch records sure. if it mattered. And I, it didn't. When I first heard it, you know, I was, of course, I... I wasn't thinking of it in, you know, all those terms. I was just like, you know, this doesn't sound doesn't right. Doesn't sound right. And then part of me said, well, okay, well, wait a minute. Maybe there's some credence to it because, again, these were just my I initial reactions. Yeah, I was I like, okay, I'm thinking about, like, films from the 20s, and you see all the fast motion and right. how, how film was recorded back then. And I thought, well, you know, maybe there is something to that, the way uh, the the process of recording, and maybe there were some differences and there wasn't a whole lot of um, standardization and there know, was, when they sure. when they recorded stuff sure but uh, yeah and <laughs> so it yeah when I first heard it I was just like it was it took a minute to wrap my mind around it and then after and I was with Richard Hyde and he played, oh, that's sure where I heard it. And he was so just like, the, yeah, he was, he thought it was the most ridiculous thing. It is ridiculous, time. but it'll trick you. Like he yeah. slowed down a Charlie McCoy record. And for a minute I thought, well, that does sound pretty good. But then like, I realized, no, that that's like a pitch too slow. And it is for people who just are trying to play the guitar yeah. part and they can't quite get it. And there's that. And then as also part of it was that's, for some people, that's how they want to hear it because it sounds more like a modern singer. Yeah. You know, yeah. In, a, in the key of E, or I don't know what all the what keys he played in sure. on well, those songs. If but. you don't have a piano player playing with you, it doesn't really matter how you tune your guitar. So you can't really say, like, this guitar is tuned to E because the E could be arbitrary. It could be wherever the hell, you know, if the guitar was tuned in relation to itself, but 
if there's no piano on the record, it really didn't matter yeah. if there was a if it was tuned to E or not. I want to ask you guys about um, the songs you do and the arrangements, just sort of as an overall uh, picture. Uh, this is kind of my untrained ear asking this question, but a lot of the rags you guys do and stuff like that. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, were they at one time piano pieces uh, and then they were uh, adapted to guitar? Because when I hear some of the stuff you guys did, not you didn't adapt them, but I'm saying like the original versions of those, the, they're complicated arrangements, takes a lot of brain power to do it. Uh, there's a lot going on there. And so my first question is, am I right in thinking there's some those were taken from piano songs and then sort of adapted to other instruments. No. No. Okay. So those were original versions on guitar. Uh, neither, actually. Okay. Well, uh, yes and no. It's just they they didn't pu they didn't publish instrument specific arrangements. Well, yes, they did because they had like the sheet music would be it was like mandolin arrangements. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, there I think you can play any song on any instrument sure. that has all the notes in it. Totally. And so, but, I mean, with a limited range instrument, of course you can't, but, um, <laughs> like the recorder. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> I was yeah. about to say that. Uh, but there's somebody yeah. sitting with a recorder listening to this. I don't want them to feel excluded. Right, right. Shedding yeah. a tear right Yeah, now. you could do it on a recorder. Well, and... Come on. Well, what I, because the, 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 <laughs> chord, nice. the chord structure is complex. You know, there's, you know, there's long note runs. And when I hear some of those things on the guitar, like you do it, those seem to have been something I would... I've expected to hear on piano to start start out with. That's why I'm asking it. But yeah. that's not necessarily the case. We pick those up, you know, sometimes off, like hearing them and they stick in our minds and they come out when we're playing the song or, or like, it's more, <laughs> uh, it's it's more abstract than you'd think. Okay. We don't like sit down and are like, gee, where is this harmony on the on the guitar? Okay. Yeah, Whereas, it is pretty damn abstract. So wait a second. So on the piano version, they do this. I mean, we just kind of like hear the song a bunch. We kind of know the song. This is unless we learn it off sheet music, which we may at times because there's well, no she record. May at times. Yeah, I may at times. Uh, or or because someone complained like, there's a beautiful, Scott Joplin wrote it this way and you're totally screwing that up. Or you totally missed you totally missed the beauty of that rag because the bass line's supposed to go bum bum. <laughs> no bass line does that in Scotch. Bum bum. Maybe it does. Bum. But in okay. But like bum. Say it's like bum 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 bum. And you're not doing that. And it sounds so. It, Scott Joplin goes bum 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 while the melody goes, I don't know what, bum 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 or whatever. Then. They'd be like, I I was listening for that and you failed. And so then You failed me, Meredith. I'm disappointed. Actually only one person did that. And and, and he did it all the time. And Mr. Happy there. That was he. Who? And Mr. Happy. We, <laughs> <laughs> some guy who's a real Some guy who's a stickler for the uh all the notes. You would come out and critique? Yeah. <laughs> really? You'd come out to the gigs? Yeah, but yeah that, Mr. That, Happy. That, that, 
It's funny. When I turned about 45, I stopped trying to kowtow. I, you know, you play this old music and people are like, well, play the Big Bill Brunzi's Pig Meat Strut. And for a while I would like kowtow to them. And I think it must have been just because I thought I'd get gigs or something. But then the day I realized I just want to do things my way and I don't care about doing anything just to please. I don't want to people please ever with music. Like I just wanted to sound however I, I play it. It'll be wrong a lot. I don't care. Right. Well, then I started playing better. I do appreciate the point that sometimes I miss what it is about the song that makes the sure, song that's so important. cool. Yeah. Or what makes, yeah. like, without the bass, without playing, bum, 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 the song, it's like, it's like, why leave that out? It's genius. Scott Joplin wrote it there. Cause it's, it's a, right. Like, totally. why that you're totally missing out. So like, yeah, there's that, but we, but yeah. So I try to like, I try, I mean, those things, usually if it's that good, I can hear it off the record and it's the first thing that I want to play when I'm playing it on the guitar or something. So we transfer them kind of like that. And, uh, but Craig is all over the place. He just makes things up as he goes along. And, and there, it's just, uh, he just, you know. He'll, I'll beg him to play the same thing twice because it was so cool last time. Can't you play that thing that you just played? And he'll be like, I don't know what I just played. Well, I guess I should uh, come clean on this, that uh, Mr. Happy's actually here. Oh, good, good. <laughs> oh, I what? hope he sits in front. I hope he we sits flew in. him in. <laughs> that would be so great. Would that be great if this was like a this is your life? <laughs> right. Here he is, Mr. Happy. <laughs> Mr. Happy, all the way from San Francisco. Just to tell you, you played the interlude wrong. <laughs> Just to tell you not to fudge the interlude. Yeah, you fudge oh, the grief. interlude. Oh, Lord. Um, all right. One last thing I wanted to ask you about, and then we'll cut you guys <laughs> Thank you loose. for having us, yes. man. This yeah. is fun. Um, it's, it's fun talking with you about this See stuff. Um, Craig, you and I were talking about uh, collecting records, and we were talking about the Height Brothers. Yeah, uh, I never met those guys. Bob Height, uh, who was in Canned Heat, and his brother Richard, who was also later in Canned Heat. Uh, and, you know, we sort of have, uh, you know, connection knowing who they were. Yeah, I, I knew yeah, Bob, you knew and, Bob. Or yeah. knew, uh, I'm sorry, knew uh, Richard. Uh, but <clears throat> I've always thought that uh, sort of record collectors uh, played in a play, do still, even if they're not musicians. Now, the Heights were different, you know, they were musicians as well. But yeah. record collectors do play an important part in this community. Yeah. And, and, yeah, it seems like it. Right. And, you know, for better or for worse, you know. Well. Go away! I'll tell you, it's true, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but things have changed with the internet. Like, when I was a little kid and I wanted to hear cylinders, because I really wanted to hear every cylinder ever made, and I was so frustrated, because how the hell are you going to do that? And then I happened to live in the same town with a guy who actually had, like, the world's best cylinder collection. So when I was a kid, I could go over there, and he was super nice, and I taped cylinders. I still have the cassettes. And I'd go to North Carolina to this guy's house who was friends of mine and tape cylinders from him. And I'd go to crazy people's houses just to tape records. Like, I was uncomfortable with some of the people I had to meet. And, like, the thing with the Internet that's great is you can hear all that stuff without 
having to go to the weirdos' basements. But in a way, it's cool that I did go to the weirdos' basements because I got to see, like, what it was really like. Like, I collect 78s, but I know I don't want to have 10,000 of them because I know that that really can hurt you. Like, it can... You don't want to have so many records that it becomes such a big part of your personality. A, a burden, yeah. It's a burden. I guess you can't move. Hold on a second. Well, now that he's gone, we can say a few things about how we really feel. Thank you, Jeremy. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's coming back. Oh, never mind. He's back. The uh, the burden of being a record collector and just being overly obsessed. But with... see, I think that part's funny. Like I I see those things like like Crumb does that in cartoons sometimes. He'll be like, "Oh, these seventy eights are such a burden. I'd be so much happier without them. Why don't I throw them away?" I think that's all silly and malarkey. Like to me, seventy eights saved my life. I think like I've collected them since I was a little kid, and when I hear those records, those voices are like my friends and I love them so much you know like I don't ever look at them as a burden <clears throat> I don't want <clears throat> 10,000 records because I want every record I have to be a gem special something I pull out where I'm like oh I'm so excited to hear this but I think it's funny when people do that when they you know I don't know what it, what that is psychologically it's like a mindset people get in though I know other collectors like that they always are talking about like you know what a burden it is, and no. why do I collect? But yeah, and it's, it's kind know. of silly to me. Like it's fun to collect records; it's really fun. You get to hear stuff. And the reason collectors used to be and still are so important is that they would loan things to be reissued. You know, for everybody else to hear. Yeah, and I knew I knew a couple guys uh, who would, like you say, make trips to different guys' houses, and they'd come back with. Um, you know, cassette tapes yeah. of stuff right. here, take this home and learn it. And oh, I want to hear some of this and some of that. Yeah. And it was just a great way to pass on the music and the tradition of all yeah, that. Yeah, everybody used to trade tapes. Yep. And before that, back in the 40s and 50s, you know how collectors used to trade with each other those things? You remember those homemade record devices you could make with aluminum base? Oh, People yeah. used to trade acetates of records send them like heavy boxes of record acetates to see you could hear stuff people collectors have always traded records uh um, do you have a uh thrift shop there is oh one. shit like find that you ever had one day oh. or like uh your collection's made of those yeah my collection's pretty weird like i'm not wealthy so but like you every were record i have is like something i found in some thrift store for 50 cents or something but i'm trying to think if there's something well not much not that often most of the good records i have i've got through auctions and trading and other collectors there was a there's a place in memphis unfortunately it's it's closed and the guy who owned it <clears throat> was sadly murdered wow uh, pointlessly jesus but um it was called River Records, and it was an old collector guy. And I went in there one day, and it was one of these kind of deals where you had to, like, he'd have to sort of give you the okay so you could get back to the 78s. Oh, he wouldn't wow. just take anybody back there. You kind of had to go in a few times. You'd have to listen to him ad nauseum for about 20 or 30 <laughs> minutes, talk about stuff, and 
you sort of had to get the approval check. Right. So I went and I made a habit of going in there on occasion. I'd buy some LPs. And finally, he's like, well, I guess I can take you back and show you, you know, some of these back here. But I don't show these to everybody. Wow. You know, he's real. You know, I was like, all right. Getting wow. To, getting to see the goods. What'd you get? Well, I ended up getting uh, mu- uh, Muddy Waters. Uh, I think it was a can't be satisfied on the original wow. label. Wow. And he's like, hey, he's like, you know, I got on aristocrat. Yeah. On aristocrat. Wow. White that's label. amazing. Yeah, Those are label. so great. And uh, he's like, well, he's like, I know you've been coming here and I got a couple of these, you know, just give me $10 for it. Man, wow. I felt like I just Damn. hit the jackpot. Yeah, you did. You know, what a great record. Yeah. I, the best, I, I think the weirdest collecting story I've got for you is that I used to play in a band with a guy who played cornet who told me he had a big collection of 78s for sale and he, that they belonged to Turk Murphy, who was like a Dixieland jazz guy in San Francisco. And I said, what's in there? And he said, oh, nothing but swing. And he said, you wouldn't want any of it. And he told me that and like years went by and I figured it was just garbage. But then something in my head was like, why would it, why would Turk Murphy have a bunch of swing records? So I went there with another collector, which I probably shouldn't have done because like we had to split everything up. But, oh, my God, we went through these boxes and there were like Paramounts and like King Oliver Jeanettes and just like the rarest blues it's like amazing and good condition too. Oh, beautiful shape, especially piano blues. So that that was my best find, but it wasn't like a junking thing. It yeah. was like a I'll, I'll, a lot of the records I've got that are the best finds I've had are through other musicians. Mm-hmm. Like musicians are cool. They want other musicians to get their records. Usually, they don't want to deal with uh, you know they don't want them to fall in the hands of dealers. And I'm that way. Like. When I get decrepit, I hope my collection, well, Meredith will get my collection probably, but like, you know, we got to work out with, to get it to somebody who's a musician yeah. and who's young and who's going to really enjoy them because I feel like archives have a lot and some records are meant to just be played and loved and enjoyed. They're just like the, the scrolls of, of music. Yeah, you know, they really are. So, all right, Meredith, sorry about that. We geeked out a little bit on the... On the yeah. record stuff. Let Meredith have a word. <laughs> That's all right. Well, so before we go, um, just uh, a little nuts and bolts. So you guys spend most of your time in uh, San Francisco, right? Yeah. Right. So well, you well, not. I mean, yeah. A I lot of so. time. A yeah. lot of time there. So at least half. You and you were mentioning. <laughs> that is most. So when folks uh, are out that way, you've got a couple sort of regular gigs you're doing nowadays. Oh sure. Well, when. They yeah I like I put it I put on my website whether I'm gonna be there or not. Craig's website is a Japanese escort service. It is. Cause I let the domain name lapse and I tried to buy it back and I looked it up and now it's like this escort service. So I was like, that's great. I'd rather have it that way. I well, don't care. It's, it's so better silly. than that. It's like it, provocative pictures of like these these like scantily clad scantily clad women and Japanese writing 
and we're like, what is this? So, so if I you think, were to type in craigventresco.com, okay. yeah. that's what happens. For a good time. <laughs> so he posted it on Facebook saying, what is this? This is my website now. I think it's a Japanese escort service because I think we did Google Translate yeah. where we translated the page and it was like, if you are craving rejuvenation when you get off the plane, is like very strange it, translation. No, so. It said, when I go through customs, I need to rejuvenate. Yeah, great. <laughs> okay, so we've established don't go to craigventresco.com. Yeah. Unless, go to, well, it depends what you're looking for. Right. It depends what you're looking but for. But if you for, yeah, that's for a, that's a perfect dates, place to go for some of you. Right? For performance dates, you want to check out MeredithAxelrod.com. Right. She's the performer. And then it, it's, it's subtitled Vintage America or something like I that. I know. I got to change that because that could mean music. That could mean, like, cookware. Clothes, that could mean, whatever. I know. Yeah. But anyway, so you guys do oh, re- yeah. some regular dates in sure. San Francisco. Here's what we do. Cafe on Saturdays. Okay, so the point is it's on my website whether I'll be there or not because don't expect that we play at this cafe every Saturday. We basically do, but it, sometimes people go and they're like, I went to the gig and you weren't there. They and just call the cafe first. Yeah, We're the cafe there. doesn't know. They're like, I called the cafe. They said you guys would be there. And so they don't know. Who knows? Only we know whether we're going to be there Only or not. So you have, to ask, you have to ask us directly. Oh, yeah. Do you, Speaking of which, I want to go eat. All right, yeah, so here's, here's, the, here's the, okay, so here's the point. Yes. Please visit MeredithAxelrod.com to find out whether we'll be at our regular gigs, one of which is every Saturday, more or less, not indeed every Saturday, at the Atlas Cafe in San Francisco from 4 to 6 p.m. And it, cert... Yes? The, and, and certain, certain Tuesdays, Tuesdays at Lush Wine Bar from, from 7.30 to 30 also, also in, in San, San Francisco. Francisco. Excellent. We'll end on that. Meredith, Craig, it's been a pleasure visiting with you guys. Continued success. Likewise. Thank you so much for yes, having us. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah.